And good morning, good morning, good morning. Great to see you, great to be with you. My name's Dave. Um, if you're new, um, welcome. I haven't, I haven't been around much over the last three or four weeks. I've been in India in the last two weeks working with our churches over there. And then before that, uh, I had an issue with my voice. Those of you that know me, kind of this chronic voice issue, and every now and then it'll go out and doctors said, hey, no talking, no preaching. And so it's kind of like a gift to my wife for a few weeks. She couldn't hear me talk, but I've, I've missed getting to be around you and, and getting to be here, and so it's good. I'm getting to be back. You guys doing well this morning? Everybody good? Everybody good? Um, if you have a Bible, Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Mark chapter 3, we've been kind of going verse by verse through the gospel of Mark uh, since the beginning of January, and we're probably going to go until Jesus returns at this pace. And so it's been this kind of long, slow, like verse by verse study, but just kind of asking Jesus to just crack open our lives and to help us see him for who he really is. And I, I just want to say this on the front end, um, just because you're here, there is no assumption that you're a follower of Jesus because you're here this morning. Um, in fact, you know, we, we know a lot of you who have been in church your whole lives and you're still not following Jesus. And whatever your story, you're welcome here. Um, uh, you are welcome to come and to explore and to question and to doubt. And uh, we believe that God is in the middle of all that. And so, um, just, just pretend this is like AA. Just come, be exactly who you are, and we'll let God do what he wants to do. Cool? So uh, that, that's Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to start um, this morning, and I kind of pick up in the story that we have been going with. So on Friday night, my wife and I, uh, we made just kind of like a monumental rookie parenting mistake. We decided to take um, our three boys to the Opry Mills Mall on a Friday night. Um, all my boys are under the age of four. And so if you've never taken kids under the age of four to a public anywhere, really, but to a public mall on a Friday night with the lights and the colors and the sounds and the toys, I mean, it is like hell on earth in so many ways. They're just scattering like cats and we're trying to herd them. And I remember uh, before I was a parent, I used to always judge those parents that had their kids on leashes. But, but now it's like I'd buy stock in that company. I mean, it's a great, practical, God-honoring idea to tie your kids up in public. And so we're kind of having this, this moment on Friday. We're walking through Opry Mills, and it's packed, and the kids are everywhere. And we get to the middle of the mall, and there's this little, like, spiritual oasis. I never noticed it until I had kids. In the middle of the mall, there's this, like, little playground with a fence around it. And it's for weary parents, you know, the faint of heart. And you just put your kids in the playground, and you can check out for a few minutes. And your wife can go shopping or whatever it is. Or the guy can go shopping, not being a sexist. And so Sydney comes to me, and she's like, hey, I, I just want to go into this store. Can you take the kids into the playground? I'm like, yes. And so they're in this playground just going nuts. And I'm sitting there with all the other weary dads. And I'm, I'm looking around, and there's just kind of this epiphany. I don't know if you ever had these moments. You're just sitting there, and you see an ordinary moment, and you see something kind of bigger. And I'm, I'm looking at all the, the weary faces of these dads, and I thought, man, it's, it's beautiful how in this one little pra- playground there is so much diversity and yet commonality. And so, like, I'm looking around this playground, and there are men and women of every race and age and nationality and background. In fact, on one side of me, on each side of me are two dads. They're first-generation immigrants. They had both come from countries that had been at war with each other for 30 years. And so I'm sitting there like Mother Teresa bringing peace in Opry Mills, you know, <laughs> just kind of talking about parenting, just kind of there in the, in the moment. I thought, man, we are so different. We, we look different. We have different dreams and hopes and desires. And yet at the same time, man, we are so much alike. 
And in this, in this moment, we have this same common desire. We have this same unbelievable need. We just need a little bit of respite for our crazy kids, and we're sitting there. And I, I was thinking about this because you see this all throughout the Scripture, that the beauty of what it means to be human, isn't it often seen in both our diversity and our commonality? And sometimes those two things are seen in the exact same breath. And so what I love is you look around this room and it's like we're all human. Uh, you know, we have the same body parts, at least most of us, and yet we, we, we look different. None of us are identical. We have different passions and thoughts and dreams and hopes and fears. And there is this diversity in this room of story, of background, of doubt, of faith. There are all these things happening. And yet at the same time, we're also very much the same, right? There are these things that your heart longs for. There are these things deep within kind of the fabric of what it means for you and I to be human, the things that get us up in the morning, the things that we work too hard for, the things that we strive for, and the things that we fear. And it's amazing how no matter what continent we're on, no matter which neighborhood you're in, no matter how, what job you work, there are certain things within the heartbeat of every human that we crave and that we long for, and they're the very things that make us human. And so this is what I want to explore for just a few moments out of Mark chapter 3. And if you take notes, I invite you to get out something to write with. I want to give you a statement that will kind of frame our time together in Mark chapter 3. And here's the reality. Some of you will agree with this statement, and some of you won't agree with this statement. And that's not the purpose. The purpose is not for all of us to buy in. The purpose is for all of us to come to the Word this morning, exploring it. And so here's the statement that I want us to explore as we read Mark chapter 3 this morning. Here it is. The deepest desires, the deepest desires of every human heart are most fully satisfied in relationship to Jesus Christ. The deepest desires of every human heart, white or black, rich or old, young or poor, educated, uneducated, Christian or not, the deepest desires, plural, of every human heart are most fully satisfied in relationship to Jesus Christ. Now, some of you believe that, some of you don't. Let's explore this together as we think through what Jesus is going to give us here in Mark chapter 3. Now, we're going to look at six short verses uh, this morning. And the truth is, these verses, at least when you first read them, are pretty boring. It's kind of like reading a phone book, just a list of names. It's the part of the Bible that you always skip over. But I want to show us that in every inch of God's Word are things for our hearts to feast upon. And so this morning, I just kind of want to comb through it. And I, I want you to see how in the midst of this calling that Jesus extends to his disciples and then in turn extends to us, I want you to see how in the midst of this calling, you begin to see some of the deepest desires of the human heart converging in the person of Jesus Christ. So I want us to wrestle with these things. So Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19, that's where we're going to go. Here's all the background you need. Jesus is about 30 years old. He's one year into his earthly ministry. And he's kind of at the height of his popularity, and his popularity is absolutely polarizing. Look with me real quick at Mark chapter 3, verse 6. You'll notice there it says, from then on, verse 6, the religious leaders and the government officials around Jesus began plotting how they were going to kill Jesus. And I go, so you begin to see that these crowds are gathering around Jesus, and within the crowd there are some people that want to kill him. Jump down to verse 8, 9, and 10 with me. It says that, People are coming from all over, and Mark begins to name the cities and the regions that they're coming from. Those cities and those regions don't mean anything to us, but if we lived during the days of Jesus, what we'd be astonished by is just how far people are walking to see Jesus and just how different the people who are coming to see Jesus actually are. And so you see hundreds, you see people walking hundreds of miles 
White, black, rich, poor, young, old, educated, religious, and unreligious. And yet there's this curiosity about Jesus. And we come to this story in Mark chapter 3. And what you see is that there are people who want to kill him. And there are people that want to crown him king. If you want to imagine Jesus during the beginning of Mark chapter 3, picture Martin Luther King Jr. towards the end of his life. Everywhere he went, there was a crowd. And within every crowd was someone that wanted to put him to death. And within every crowd was someone that wanted to make him president. And this is Jesus. Jesus was not Mr. Rogers. He wasn't the spiritual guru that made everybody feel good. He was a divisive, polarizing, life-changing, heart-shaping man who could not be ignored. And everywhere he went, people were trying to decide, what do we do with this man? And it's in the midst of the popularity that we come to this story in Mark chapter, 13, Mark chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus withdraws from the crowd. He goes up on a mountain. Look at the word of God with me. In Mark chapter three, verse 13, it says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those that he wanted and they came to him. And he appointed, you should underline that word if you're writing your Bibles, it's a pretty key word. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 that he appointed. This is where it starts feeling like the phone book. Simon, to whom he'd give the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the nickname Boadrones, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew. Matthew, the tax collector. Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus, Simon the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray him. This is the word of God out of Mark chapter three. Now here's what I I want us to see, because there's this moment. Jesus goes up on a mountain. Thousands of followers around him, out of the midst of the masses, Jesus is going to invite 12 people to him, and for three years, he's going to give them a special relationship, special access, so that in turn, God could bless the ends of the earth, okay? And here's what I want us to explore this morning. Is it really true that as we lean our lives into the calling of Jesus, that the deepest desires of the human heart are most fully satisfied there? So I want you to kind of notice four blessings that begin to converge in the hearts of the disciples as they lean into this calling from Jesus. And if you take notes, the first one is this. They began to discover firsthand the blessing of being known. The blessing of being known. Have you ever noticed within your own heart just how deep that desire is to be known? What is it that makes home feel like home? It's not just that you recognize the places and it's not that you just recognize the buildings and it's not just that you recognize the friends, it's that at home, those things recognize you. I remember being in college my freshman year and going home for the very first time and walking into the church that I grew up in and walking into that building and there were people that I hadn't seen in six months and all of a sudden they're coming up to me and they're saying my name and they're asking questions about college and asking if I'm dating anybody and they wanna know the stories and what made home feel like home is it was the place that I was known. It's the reason some of you feel at home at Ethos. You come in and you see people who know you who care about you, they know your name, they, 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 they know your story. And it's the reason some of you are sitting in this room and you don't feel at home because you don't feel known. And you're going, man, if I left, would anybody notice? If I left, would anybody care? If I, if I get out of here, would anybody miss me? And deep within the fabric of every human heart, isn't it true that we long to be known? I remember when I was in middle school, my family moved different city, from one city to another, 600 miles away. 
And, uh, it, you know, middle school is like rough enough as is. Even just me saying middle school, it's sending some of you into post-traumatic stress disorder. It's like, you just remember like the, the pain of middle school. Middle schoolers, I'm sorry, it'll get better, okay? Um, but, you know, I remember that moment and we moved in the middle of the year during middle school and all of a sudden I'm in a new city that's like 200 times larger than the city I just come from. And I'm at, at a school that was bigger than the whole town that I just lived in. And I remember just how... Uh, discombobulating that move was. And I remember the worst part of every day was walking into the cafeteria. Do you remember how much lunch hour just kind of sucked when you were in middle school? You know, you'd walk in with that terrible food and you're like, who am I gonna sit with? I know some of you are popular. You never felt this. I'm sorry for your tough life. But the rest of us, you know, you walk in and it's like, who am I gonna sit with? Who am I gonna talk to? And I remember for five or six weeks walking in and I dreaded that 30 minutes every day. Let's just survive. And I walked into the lunchroom about six weeks into being in this new city and Kevin Limehouse, you can look him up on Facebook. Tell him thank you if you look him up, real guy. Kevin Limehouse is like, hey Dave, come over, come sit with us. And there was this moment. All of a sudden I felt like I belonged. Why? It's like somebody knew me. I felt like I was known. I go, can you imagine what it felt like to have been one of the disciples? They're sitting in this crowd of thousands. Here's Jesus, this polarizing figure with this polarizing popularity. And he looks out over the sea of faces and he calls them by their name. Simon, Thaddeus, Bartholomew, Thomas. And they're like, wait, he knows me? <laughs> How does he know me? Can you imagine the joy of hearing your name come off the lips of your maker. The reason so many of you are working so hard to make a name for yourself is because you've forgotten that there's someone great who already knows your name. And I love the words of Isaiah 43. He says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Do not fear. I have made you. I have formed you. I have redeemed you. And I'm calling you by name. And I go, these moments, you know, within our human story, where we go, I don't know if anybody knows me. I don't know if anybody really knows me. It's in the calling of Jesus that he begins to show these guys, they begin to discover the blessing of, of what it means to be known. Are you tracking with me there? But it's not the only thing they begin to discover. It's not just that they're known. It's also that they're loved. If you take notes, let me write that down. It's, it's not just that they're known, it's that they're, they're, they're loved. And so Jesus looks at these guys and, and he knows who they are. He knows their stories. He knows their faults. He knows their flaws. You know, one of the reasons some of us work so hard to make sure nobody actually knows us because we're scared to death. If someone knows us, they couldn't really love us. And this is the beauty that you see from the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve screw it up. God comes to him and says, I know you and I love you. It's what you see with the disciples here. It's not just that Jesus knows them, it's that he loves them. And he loves them not because of their value to God and he doesn't love them because of their gifts or their talents or their strengths. Jesus' love for the disciples is anchored in God's greatness, not in the disciples' greatness. I remember a, a few years ago, uh, discovered that I've got this chronic voice issue and it's not very important, so I don't wanna talk about it too much, but it's this hereditary issue where every now and then my vocal cords will kind of fail me and sometimes I can't talk for a few days, sometimes it's a few weeks and so the first time it really happened was two or three years ago and my voice went out for almost six weeks. Maybe some of you remember this. It actually happened in the middle of a sermon at 9 a.m. Voice went out, couldn't finish preaching that day, no voice and for six weeks I'm walking around with a whiteboard, like can't, can't talk and Sydney loved it at first, and then it drove her crazy after a, a few weeks. And it was in the midst of the, kind of that silence that 
God began to reveal some like real idols in my heart and some areas of misplaced identity. And one of the things that I began to discover was how much of my identity was connected to my ability to do what I'm doing right now. To like stand up and talk, to stand up and... And I remember thinking about four weeks in, you know, I was visiting specialists at Vanderbilt and they're like, we don't know if this will come back. We don't know when it will come back. My, my grandmother, her voice has been gone for 11 years now. And I'm thinking, man, this just set in early. What's the deal? And I remember all these fears going, what if I can never talk again? You know, what's this mean? And so one day... I'm sitting here at 9 a.m., somewhere over in these seats, and Jake Burton, who's a part of our church family, he goes over to Marathon now. Uh, he came up, and he said, Dave, I was praying for you during the middle of worship, and God just laid something on my heart. And he said, I wanted to share it with you. He said, I'm praying that your voice comes back, but here's, here's what I sensed as I was praying. I'm supposed to tell you this. He said, Dave, if your voice never comes back, you need to know that all these people in this room still love you. And it's so hard to explain, and it sounds so cheesy. It was like the voice of God just like spoken in my heart. And I realized how much of my sense of love was connected to my ability to do or to perform. And God kind of in the midst of that moment said, Dave, you're loved not because you do, you're loved because you are. You're loved because you exist. And so much of us, even some of our Christianity, even so much of our religious pursuit is anchored in a false assumption that love is something to be earned, not something that has already been freely bestowed upon you because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And there's this thing that Jesus begins to show them. Look back at verse 13 and 14 with me. It says that Jesus called those that he wanted so they could be with them. He didn't call them because they were useful. It doesn't look out and said, oh man, Jesus saw you know, the tenacity of Peter and the strength of Andrew and the leadership skills of Bartholomew. Like, it says that Jesus looked out and out of his heart, he saw them, he knew them, he loved them. And the first command that Jesus gives the disciples is not to preach a sermon, it's not to go into the world, it's not to serve the poor, it's to enjoy the unmerited, undeserved, unending love of God that washes over all people like the waves of an ocean that never keep coming, ne never quit coming. It says these are the people, they wanted to be with them, that he wanted. And they go, the power and the blessing of being known and of being loved that's discovered on mission with Jesus Christ. Keep going, third picture that I want you to see. It's not just that they were known and loved, it's that they enjoyed the reality of real community. They enjoyed the blessing of, of real community. Isn't it true that within every human heart, it doesn't matter what your story is, you were not just made for God, but you were also made for other people. That there is power in togetherness. There is a blessing that comes in the context of doing life with other people. Those of you that are introverts, you just want a few people to do life with. Those of you that are extroverts, you need a lot of people to do life with. But whatever it is, we all need people, right? Everyone needs someone. And that by your very nature, you're not created to, to follow God alone, to do this journey by yourself. Have you ever noticed that you really begin to see the power of community both when you have it and when you don't? And so I think about Luke and Sarah Duncan who are part of our church. They have a two-year-old girl, Lila, who six, six weeks ago was diagnosed with cancer and you guys have been amazing just coming around them and loving them and serving this family. But I'll never forget what Luke said to me. He said, I've been surrounded by Christians my whole life and I never understood the power of biblical community until I needed it. And he said, and then we get the diagnosis that we hope we would never get. 
And the people of God show up in ways that we never thought they'd show up. And he says, you see the power of community. You see it when you have it. Isn't it also true, and some of you are experiencing this right now, you also experience the power of community when you don't have it? So I think about an article that my friend Deanna sent me recently. It was talking about the correlation between addiction and self-harm and the feeling of aloneness. And there's this unbelievable correlation. Those of you that are battling addictions right now and those of you that are battling self-harm, for, for so many of you, it's anchored in a feeling of aloneness. Nobody cares. Nobody would notice. Even if they did notice, they wouldn't care. And sometimes the aloneness is real and sometimes the aloneness is perceived. It's the reason you can be in this room surrounded by people and feel utterly alone. It's amazing how many CEOs and executives struggle with great addiction and it comes back to aloneness and everybody's like, you're not alone. Everyone wants to be around you. And they go, but yeah, nobody understands me. Nobody knows me. Nobody really gets me. And there's this thing that happens, the power of community, the power of togetherness. It's the reason when a single snowflake hits your hand, it melts. But when a million snowflakes come down together, it shuts down the city of Nashville and our schools for a decade, right? <laughs> power together. Have you ever noticed when you start following Jesus like a lone ranger, how often your walk with Jesus begins to fade and your view of God begins to distort? because you weren't meant to do this alone. And the blessing that the disciples begin to receive as they step into the calling was not just of being known by God and of being loved by God, but it was also being known and being loved by each other because Jesus didn't just call them to himself. He called them to each other. And this is, this is really important to see because so often, you know, we're 2,000 years removed from this story in Mark chapter three and our tendency is to romanticize the community that you see unfolding here in the scriptures. But I want you to notice this. Jesus was giving them a community. He was not giving them a perfect community. In fact, he was giving them a very jacked up, broken community that only Jesus himself could hold together. And so you see this. Look back at the names of some of these guys. You have Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Do you remember what they did, class? What was their job? Come on, we've talked about this a lot. What were Peter, Andrew, James, and John? Shout it out. Fishing. Fishing. All right, three of you have read the word of God. Yes. Just kidding, just kidding, okay? Anyways, um, Peter, Andrew, and John, fishermen. Matthew, what did Matthew do? He taxed fishermen. Well, can you imagine how explosive that team was? Can you imagine what that dynamic felt like? Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they show up to the first Team Jesus team meeting, and in, in walks Matthew, and they're like, wait a minute. Jesus, you better be bringing this guy in to punish him. <laughs> You're not bringing him in on the team. And Jesus is like, actually, he's going to write the first book of the New Testament. So they're like, what? <laughs> Couldn't have been a perfect community. Or James and John, look at the nickname that Jesus gives them. How awesome would it be to be given a nickname by Jesus? I mean, it's like, he looks at you, Adam, and he's like, your name is no longer Adam, it's A-Dog. You know? Jesus would have come up with a much better name than that, Okay. <laughs> He's a son of God. He would have had a cooler nickname for you. But imagine the, the power. You know, Jesus looks at James and John, and he gives them a nickname. What's the nickname? He calls them the sons of thunder. Do you know what that means? It means the hot-tempered ones. It's like the Kardashians. Jesus is like, I'm putting two guys on the team. Tons of drama. Maybe, you know, everywhere they go, people are going to argue. People are going to fight on the team. You've got Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. What did Matthew do for a job? He helped hold up the Roman government. What was Simon's job? It was to bring the Roman government down. Sarah Palin and Osama bin Laden, or Auburn and Alabama, <laughs> same team. 
you can tell we're a football area, right? Everyone's like, Sarah Palin, who's Osama bin Laden? Football, oh. <laughs> That'd be explosive, <laughs> you know. I'm glad our priorities are in the right place. Did he give them a perfect community? No, he gave them a real community. And I want you to notice this, this is so important. It's the reason biblical community is always hardest. Because Jesus is inviting these disciples. It's almost as if he's daring them. He's saying, listen, will your love for me be bigger than your differences with each other? You see, outside of the kingdom of God, outside of church, we pick friends the the way the rest of the world does. You pick your friends based upon commonality. You pick people that have the same interests, the same likes, that live in the same part of the, the world, the neighborhood, whatever it is that you are, and you build your friendships around lowest common denominators. But in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, listen, I'm inviting people from every background, every stripe, every shape, every story, and I'm asking you, is your love for Jesus big enough to come up with your differences with each other? Because the reason there's always conflict in churches, because Jesus doesn't call people that are just alike. Jesus calls people. He begins to show them. They get the blessing of being known. They get the blessing of being loved. They get the blessing of real community. I'll give you one more. And they get the blessing of a life filled with purpose. Have you ever noticed just how much your human heart needs a purpose bigger than yourself to latch onto? It's the reason you don't just want a job. You want a job that has meaning. It's the reason you don't just want friendships or a marriage. You want a marriage that's full of meaning. It's like there's something within us. It's as if God has hardwired us. Every time we look at the mirror and you see the wrinkles beginning to form or you realize the effects of a body that is deteriorating, there is something in you. Every time you stand before the mirror and you think about yourself, you understand that if your life is not anchored into something bigger, this life will not be remembered, right? You need a purpose. And I love it. Jesus looks at these disciples. I want you to look back at verses 14 and 15 with me. And he calls them into two of the most central purposes of Jesus' life. And we're not going to dig into them too much here. We'll see them in the weeks to come. But he calls these guys and he calls these gals to to be about the things that he's about, to to preach the word, to deliver the good news, and to, to push out the darkness. And Jesus is saying, I'm inviting you to leverage your life in such a way, to lean your life into the purposes of God that are so big and so bold, only God could pull those off through you. And you begin to see these disciples over the next few years as they follow Jesus deeper and deeper and deeper. They begin to receive the blessing of being known and of being loved, of having a biblical community, of having a God-sized purpose. And it's not just a blessing they receive. It'll become the blessing that they share. And you and I are here today, standing in this room because the Holy Spirit of God worked to these ordinary folks who received the call. And I go, I wonder, who are the people who will benefit from the fruit of your faithfulness, the calling of God upon your life. Maybe even bigger, who are the people who will miss out on the faithfulness of God if you refuse to step into the calling of God upon your life? And so I, I read this and I go, man, this is, this is beautiful. Like, who doesn't want to be known and loved? Who doesn't want community? Who doesn't want to have a life filled with purpose? But can we just talk about the elephant in the room for a moment? Um, isn't it true that following Jesus, like many times, doesn't feel that great? And a lot of you have been Christians for a long time and you don't feel super known. You don't feel very loved. <laughs> you, know, you don't know if you have community. You don't know if you have purpose. And isn't it amazing how we can talk about these things, but that there's something deep within the undercurrents of our hearts that are really wrestling going, 
but is it actually for me? And so uh, let's pull this down to the ground and let's get real practical for a moment and we'll take communion. I want to wrestle with two challenges and give you two practical applications as we think about whether or not this is true, okay? So two challenges. First challenge is this. I think we have to wrestle with the challenge of context. The challenge of context. You've got to really ask yourself the question, is this story in Mark chapter 3 really for you? It's clearly a story for them. You know, Jesus showed up in a real moment amongst a huge group of people and really called 12 people to himself so they could bless the world. It was clearly a story for them. The question we have to ask is, is it a story for us? Is this a call that God is making to all people in all times um, for his purposes and his glory? Are these things really on the table for us? There are a lot of things that we can look at in scriptures. I'm going to try to make this simple. John chapter 14 is a chapter you need to read today when you go home. Two years after this moment with his disciples, Jesus is getting ready to be crucified. They're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, and one of the 12, one of the ones that is called here by Jesus, asks Jesus this very question. He says, Jesus, for the last three years, you have, you have shown us the Father, you've given us the Holy Spirit, you've given us a special friendship. And the question that is asked in John chapter 14, verses 21 and 22, is a question that a lot of us ask, even if we don't realize we're asking it. One of the disciples says, but what about everybody else? What about everybody else? Is this calling really for everybody else? And I love Jesus' answer in John chapter 14. He says, I'm telling you the truth. Anyone, he says, anyone who loves me and obeys me, he says, I will come to them, I will send my Holy Spirit to them, I will reveal the Father to them, and I will make my home with them. In other words, Jesus says, what you have been experiencing, the context of what you're experiencing is available to anyone who's interested in calling on the name of Jesus. And I go, so is it possible for us to walk with Jesus on mission in such a way that the deepest needs of the human heart are satisfied in him? We have to ask the question of context. I think the answer is absolutely yes. Let's wrestle with one more challenge though, real quickly. It's not the challenge of context, it's the challenge of experience. And I go, it's one thing to like cognitively believe that we're known and loved. It's one thing to believe that we have community and purpose. But it is another thing to wake up on a Monday morning and to see those things take anchor in the reality of your life. Uh, I don't know if there's anything more powerful in, in our lives than our own experience. In fact, so much of what you believe and you don't believe is solely based upon what you have experienced or what you have not experienced. We like to chalk it up to intellectual pursuit and discovery, but the reality is there's almost nothing that's more powerful than experience, right? And so what, what, what do you do with this reality? For some of you, you've been following Jesus for a long time and you have not sensed his love and you don't feel very known, and you don't feel like you have a good community, and you don't feel like you have much purpose, what do you do about the incongruency in your own experience with the words of Jesus? And here's what I want to point you to for just a moment. The journey of discipleship that these followers of Jesus went on, it was not an intellectual journey that took place in a classroom. In other words, Peter did not discover that he was known by Jesus because Jesus stood up in a lecture hall and said, Peter, you are known by me. Peter discovered that he was known by Jesus as he kept stepping into the mission of Jesus. He kept discovering that nobody knew Peter like Jesus did. And so Jesus would look at him and goes, hey, bro, you're getting ready to betray me. And then you're going to come back to me. 
And then you're gonna do things you never thought you'd do, but I'm gonna use you to build the church. And over time, as Peter kept leaning into the mission of God, he discovered that he was known. The disciples did not discover that they were loved because they sat in a classroom or in an auditorium or in a bar on a Sunday morning. Someone stood up and said, you're loved by God. The places in which the disciples discovered the love of God is when on mission with Jesus, they found themselves in places of brokenness and pain and suffering and failure that they never thought they'd be in. And Jesus shows up on the beach in John chapter 21 and he cooks them breakfast and he shows them the love when they thought the love of God surely had been exhausted. The disciples didn't learn about community by sitting in Portland Brew talking about how much they needed community. The disciples learned about community as they got with a band of brothers and sisters that were different than them and followed Jesus to the ends of the earth, even to their own death. And 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this little group of men and women were still together, not because of their commonalities, like externally, but because of their commonalities around the person and the work and the salvation of Jesus Christ. Now, you want that community. It comes with an unrelenting commitment to Jesus go on with purpose, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I go, what do you do with this? I go, the experience of being on mission that uncovers the truth that will satisfy the human heart will never come in a single Sunday. They'll never come in a single podcast. It comes when we keep putting our feet on the path behind Jesus and going wherever it is that Jesus is calling us. And I go, so how do you step into this? Two real practicals as we get ready for communion. Here they go. Two words, grace and grit, okay? Grace and grit. Look back at verse 14 real quickly. This is huge. It says, he appointed the 12. That word appointed is a huge word. It literally means to make or to create out of something that wasn't there. And so it's not that Jesus looked across the crowd of thousands and went, here are the 12 that have the perfect leadership gifts to do all that God needs them to do. In other words, Jesus looked across the crowd and he found a bunch of have-nots. He had people that did not have the gifts and he said, my grace will make up for what your gifts are lacking. And so the disciples began to experience this journey with Jesus, not because of their gifts, but because of their grace. And this is the starting point of mission with Jesus. We wake up every morning and go, our salvation it's his grace. Every gift and good thing in my life is his grace. The opportunity to be about the important work of God in the world is his grace. And I go, you step into this from a starting place of grace, but you hold on to it as you keep developing grit. Look back at verse 13. This last verse we'll look at this morning. I love where the story starts. It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to them those that he wanted have you ever climbed a mountain before? Have you ever gone hiking? Climbing mountains are not like really easy unless you're as ripped as I am and in as great shape, you know. Um, JK, you know, like mountain climbing, not, not easy. And I, I love this story. It doesn't say Jesus showed up on the plains of Nebraska and gave the disciples a bike and told them to ride downhill to him. What does it say? It says he went up on a mountain and he called the disciples to himself. And can you imagine they're like walking up this mountain in those old-timey flowy robes from Bible times, whatever they wore, and their nasty beards and their sandals that are breaking. And they're like, couldn't Jesus, the creator of the universe, found a more um, you know, natural place for the first team meeting? I mean, like this is the worst marketing idea ever. Jesus is like, hey, we're gonna change the world. Hike up this dang mountain in your man skirts with me. And they're like, what? Like, Seriously, like this is, this is the call? 
Like you see this over and over and over and over. Stick with me. So often, before there's a blessing to be received, there's a mountain to climb. Before there's a blessing to receive, there's a mountain to climb. And so often, we will not choose the mountains. It'll be tragedy, suffering, hardship, doubt, fear, your own failure, whatever it is. And Jesus will keep calling them. And maybe my favorite part of the whole, the whole story, it says Jesus called them and they came to him. The disciples were always getting it wrong. This is one of the only things they got right. He kept calling and they kept coming. And I go, where is Jesus calling you? You want your heart to be satisfied? You want to experience what it means to be fully alive? Where is Jesus calling you? Some of you, you know it. Like even when I ask that question, you go, this is the next step. I got to get baptized or I got to get in community or I got to get my marriage back on track. Or some of you know what the calling is. God's put this mission before you. You know some of you are like me. Like I asked that question, where's God calling me? And I go, I just don't know. But I'll tell you what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna open up his word. I'm gonna read, I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna try to serve my family, I'm gonna try to love and serve you all today, the people that God's putting in front of me. And trusting that when Jesus wants me to hear the call, I'll hear it. That I'll have the courage to step into it. Where's he calling? Where's he calling? Where's he calling? Let's go. Father, thank you for this group of people.